The Christmas season slays our senses, doesn't it? The sights, the sounds, the smells, the taste, the touch of Christmas are indelible. We begin to reflect upon the festive lights and the decorated trees, the delectable treats, the manger scenes. And perhaps this season, more than any other season of the year, is marked by music. If you stop and think about, there's some songs that are only played at Christmas time. And it's not quite Christmas unless these songs are played and sung. I mean, songs like Joy to the World, O Little Town of Bethlehem, Silent Night, O Holy Night, just to name a few. I mean, these are the songs of the season. And when we hear these festive songs, it gets us ready for the Advent. It gets us ready for the coming of the Christ. When you and I come to the nativity portions of the sacred scripture, we find that there are some festive songs in the sacred script. Today I want to begin a three-part sermon series simply entitled The Songs of Christmas. Over the next three weeks, I want to take a look at three different passages of Scripture where it seems like that people are bursting out into song. Today, I want to preach you a sermon that's entitled Zechariah's Silent Symphony. It's found in Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 79. I invite you to take a Bible and turn there. Once you find your place in sacred Scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 1, let me begin at verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and he has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. As he said through his holy prophets long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. To show mercy to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve, us, to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. As the time dawned on the days of the first century, this was the question on the hearts and minds of the people of antiquity. Can God be trusted. Can God be trusted? It's really a legitimate question. You see, for ages the Lord had raised up prophets to say, thus saith the Lord. Those prophets foretold that one day the coming Messiah would arrive. But many years had passed, and the long-awaited Christ child had not come. The question on their minds, upon their hearts, can God be trusted. To make matters worse, it had been 400 years since the last prophet of God spoke. 400 long years of a sovereign, silent treatment. 400 years 
where God raised up no prophet, no one like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, no one like Amos, Obadiah, or Hosea. There was no one to speak. The last prophet to say, thus saith the Lord, was a man by the name of Malachi. And Malachi said that in the days of the Lord, I will send the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. There have been 400 years since those words have been spoken. That's a mighty long time. It's a long time to be groping in a dash of despair. It's a long time to be wondering if God can be trusted. That's a long time to wonder, is God listening? Does God care? Has God turned his back on us? For 400 years, there was a self-imposed gag order that the Lord had placed upon himself and upon his servants. There was no prophet in the land. The idea that the Messiah would come was a fleeting hope. And the reality that God would show up and show off was highly questionable. And people wondered, can God be trusted? I wonder if you know what that feels like. Do you know what it feels like to wonder if God can be trusted in your life? I mean, you've asked for an answer, but there's no answer that's on the horizon. You have pleaded for healing, but you're not getting any better, you're getting worse. You've asked for recovery of your loved one, but instead of your loved one recovering from sickness, they died from the sickness. You have prayed for reconciliation, but the brokenness still abounds, and the, and the jagged edges of that brokenness is so hurtful, and you wonder, does God even listen? Does God even care? Can God be trusted? Do you know what it feels like to wonder if God is ever going to show up again? Do you know what it's like to live in uh, just a, a dry, arid desert of spirituality? What do you do when you pray and it feels as if there's no answer? What do you do when you seek the Lord but it appears as if he cannot be found? How do you handle life when, when you want to hear from God Almighty and it seems as if there is bone-crushing silence? How do you handle it? Do you ask the questions like the people of antiquity when they ask, can God be trusted? In the days of the first century, the people, they continued to worship and they continued to pray and they continued to serve. It's pretty good advice, my friend. That when you're in that moment of difficulty and in despair, when you're in that moment wondering if God even cares or if he can be trusted, in those moments, continue to worship, continue to pray, and continue to serve. Don't stop worshiping and don't stop praying and don't stop serving. This is the ministry backdrop of the first couple that we meet in Luke's gospel. It's a man by the name of Zechariah. It's a woman by the name of Elizabeth. They are described as upright and blameless. For Luke to call them upright is to say that they are morally pure. To say they're blameless does not mean they're perfect, but it simply means that they follow religiously the law of God. They are upright and they're blameless. Zechariah is one of 18,000 priests serving in the first century. He is part of the 24 divisions. Each division had about 750 priests assigned to it. Each division was assigned to the work of the temple 
for one week at a time, twice a year. And when Luke begins his gospel, he introduces us to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Zechariah is there at the temple. He is is working uh, when his division is called to assignment at the temple complex. Now, when you bump into Zechariah and Elizabeth, they seem like they have it all together. I mean, he's got a great job. I'm sure they have a nice house. They probably have a nice chariot. But there is one thing that seems to elude them. Elizabeth is barren. She's unable to conceive. It's not that they haven't tried. Oh, they tried month after month after month. But each month their hopes are are dashed. And um, it's frustrating. And maybe you, my friend, maybe you know the heartache of infertility. Maybe you and your spouse understand the pain of, of desperately wanting a child. But seems as if that dream is not going to become a reality. This is life for Zechariah and Elizabeth. They are wondering, is God going to ever move again in the nation? But they're also wondering, is God going to ever bless us and answer our prayer personally and privately? It's one thing to worry about your culture. It's another thing to have a personal crisis that keeps you up at night. It's one thing to worry about your nation. It's one thing to look around and say, Lord, when are you going to clean up this, this and uh, clean up and fix up this, this mess up of our country? It's one thing to worry about the nation. It's another thing to worry about the crisis of your own soul. This is Zechariah and Elizabeth. Not only are they living during the days of, of, of dry, arid uh, spirituality in the nation of Israel, but also personally they're wondering, Lord, are you listening? We want a child and you're not giving us a child. And they personally were wondering, can God be trusted? But the beautiful picture is that we see Zechariah and what's he doing? He's still praying, he's still worshiping, he's still serving. He has not abandoned God. He has not given up on the Lord. He still continues to do the things that God had called him to do. Friend, you keep on worshiping. You keep on praying. You keep on serving. They're there in the temple. He is ministering around the temple complex. We're told in the opening lines of Luke chapter 1 that they cast lots for the various assignments of the daily duties. And the lot fell upon Zechariah. And he was called upon to go into the holy place to burn incense before the evening sacrifice while the people of God gathered outside of the temple and they prayed. Now, I can tell by the look on your face, you don't think this is a very big task. And to be honest, when I first read it, I don't think I thought it was a very big task. But this responsibility of going into the holy place and burning incense according to Daryl Bach in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, is, and I quote, the greatest ministry in the priest career. This was a chance of a lifetime. In fact, the priest could only do this once in his lifetime. Talk about pressure. I mean, you 
got one shot at this. You can't mess it up. You can't catch the temple on fire. I mean, you can't just light the wrong thing. You can't just mess up the evening sacrifice. You've got to do this perfectly well because everybody is counting on you and you got one shot to do it. Don't blow it, buddy. You've only got one chance. This is one chance of a lifetime. This is a huge responsibility. To us, it's just burning incense. But to the people of God, to the priest, to the one whose uh, lot was called, the assignment was given, he thought to himself, this is my day. (laughs) This is my task. He did not want to mess it up. I can well imagine that Zechariah walked around and paced and he was a little nervous and anxious and he thought to himself, "I I can't botch this. I can't really mess this up. So in his mind, He thought to himself, let me just re-familiarize myself with the furniture of the holy place. I mean, there's the altar, and there's the lampstand, and there's the showbread and the table. There's the water of basin, a basin of water. Um, There's everything that's there. And he began to re-familiarize himself with the various things in the holy place. And then it came time. It's game time. It's game on. Now or never. Here's the moment. You've got to go in there, big boy. You've got to burn the incense. Everybody's counting on you. The evening sacrifice. All the people are waiting outside and they're praying. Now or never. Here's your moment. Rise and shine. Let's go. You're not excited yet, but that's okay. So Zechariah walks in. He's in the holy place. He's doing what he has been taught to do. He's been made for this moment. He burns the incense. And all of a sudden, he looks to the right of the altar. And there is an angel. Once again, you all are not shocked by this. Zechariah is astounded. He thinks to himself, listen, in all of my priestly textbooks, ain't nobody talked about to the right side of the altar, there's going to be an angel. The right side, the side of favor. The right side, in between the altar and the lampstand. As if God says, I don't want you to miss this. I want it to be very well illuminated. And so the angel is there, and it it, it completely shocks and horrifies uh, Zechariah. And he thinks to himself, what in the world is going on? The angel says, do not be afraid. Yeah, easy for you to say. Have you ever noticed every time an angel shows up in the scripture, people always respond in fear? I mean, most of us think of an angel as a little baby, right? A little baby on a cloud, little Cupid, something like that flying around. I don't think that's what an angel of the Lord looks like because I'm not afraid of a little naked baby. I mean, I'm not afraid of a little baby on a cloud. That does not frighten me. But the angel of the Lord always frightens whoever is looking upon. So the angel of the Lord is there. says, do not be afraid. I have heard your prayer. The Lord has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, she'll conceive. She'll give birth to a son. You're going to give him the name John. The angel went on to give a pre-conception ultrasound of this baby. It said this one named John, he will be a joy and a delight, not just to you, but to many. He will go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Woo! 
What an amazing ultrasound. I mean, in this moment, before the baby is even conceived, before the baby is growing in mama's belly, before the baby is in Elizabeth's womb, the Lord sent an angel who the angel said to Zechariah, the daddy, hey, listen, your baby boy, he's going to be tough stuff. Your baby boy is going to be the one who's coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. You know the Elijah that Malachi foretold some 400 years ago? The one who's going to fulfill that person is your son. He's going to be great. He's going to be a delight. He's going to be for sure. He's going to be living. He is going to be the one to do the work and ministry that God has called him to do. What amazing ultrasound. I promise you this. Zechariah did not need nine justices to verify the living viability of that child in utero because before the baby was even conceived, Zechariah got a word from God that that baby is a real living baby and that baby is going to be powerful. That baby is going to be my servant. I am going to use him mightily in my cosmic plan. Oh, my friend. I don't want you to miss this, that in this moment of this passage, this angel says to Zechariah, God heard your prayers. Don't let that go in one ear and out the other and fly right over your head. Keep in mind the context, 400 years of sovereign silence, four centuries Numerous generations of faithful men and women have come and gone. And in this moment, the Lord says to the priest named Zechariah, God hears your prayers. God listens, my friend. He listens to your prayers. Now, you sit there and think to yourself, what prayer are you talking about? Are you talking about the prayers that we're offering up outside the temple? Because each evening, uh, the people gathered and they were supposed to pray for the nation of Israel. Is God listening to the national prayers of his people? Well, yeah, probably, but, but, but then the, the angel clarifies. He says, the prayers I'm talking about are the fact that your wife, Elizabeth, is going to conceive and give birth to a baby boy. You're going to give him the name John. See, God listens to your prayers, not only to the cultural problems that you have, but the personal crisis that keeps you up at night. He also listens to those prayers. I don't want you to miss the reality that God listens to the prayers of his people. His answers may come in surprising places, at surprising times, in surprising ways. But God listens, and God reacts to the prayers of his people. There's some of you who are one prayer away from a breakthrough. You've been praying for your spouse, you've been praying for your son, you've been praying for your granddaughter, you've been praying for your health concern, you've been praying for your situation, you've been praying for your employment, you've been praying for that crisis, you've been praying for that friend, you've been praying for that loved one for month after month after month, maybe year after year, and I want you to know that God listens to the prayers of his people, and some of you are one prayer away from a breakthrough. You're one prayer away from your burning incense moment. You're one prayer away from God showing up and showing off and astounding you and blowing your sandals off your feet. You are one prayer away 
from God doing something remarkable. Here, Zechariah is just doing his job. He's just going about his daily business. He's doing what he had been commissioned to do on that day. He went into the holy place. He was going to burn incense so the evening sacrifice could be offered, so the prayers of the people could be made outside of the temple. And in that moment, God shows up. God shows up sometimes in the most unique ways, the most unique times, the most unique situations. And he shows up to tell you, I can be trusted. You can trust me. I've heard your prayers. I've heard the prayers that you've offered for you, for your wife. And I tell you what, she's going to conceive. And she's going to give birth to a son. You're going to give him the name John. He's going to be great. He's going to be a delight. He'll be a joy to you, to many. He'll prepare the way of the Lord in a similar way as Elijah. He's going to go before the people in the power of the great prophet, Elijah. Now, if you got news like that, that God was going to answer your prayer and answer it in a way that was bigger and better than you could ever imagine. I mean, if you got this confirmation, how would you respond? You may get excited. Let me tell you what Zechariah did. He said, how can I be sure of this? Now, before you browbeat Zechariah and you think, what a dote. I mean, what an idiot. I mean, you just heard from an angel of the Lord and that angel told you everything and more than you've ever wanted to hear. And now you're going to doubt it? Oh, don't, don't browbeat this, brother. Because you and I, many times, would do the very same thing and say the very same thing. How can I be sure of this? He said, I'm an old man. And my wife is well along in years, which is a really nice way of saying she's an old gal. How can I be sure of this? She's postmenopausal. How can I be sure of this? We're about to draw Social Security checks. I mean, how can I be sure of this? We're up in age. I mean, this just doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you would have answered this prayer a few years ago, many years ago, when we asked you to answer it, then that would make sense. But now, Lord, you've been waiting so long. I mean, not just personally, but also corporately and culturally and, and throughout the country. I mean, you've been waiting so long. God, I mean, how can, how can we be sure that this is really you? And how can we be sure that you're going to do this? And the angel, if I can just be honest with you, got ticked off. The angel said, I am Gabriel for crying out loud. Who do you think you are? I stand in the presence of God Almighty. He sent me to deliver this message to you and you're not going to believe me? Who do you think you are? From now until all this comes to be, you won't be able to speak. And in that moment, instantaneously, the preacher could not talk. He tried to speak, but he couldn't speak. In that moment, in the holy place, he tried to say something, but he couldn't say a word. Not even air flew over his vocal cords. He could not muster a sound. The preacher couldn't talk. Now, this conversation between Gabriel and Zechariah had taken quite a long time. In fact, the people outside, they were getting restless. 
I mean, they came to pray, but prayer has its limitations, right? I mean, there's only a certain amount of time you're supposed to be there to pray. And then usually, once the priest who did his job in the holy place, in the day, he would come out and he would give a blessing or a benediction. Uh, and he would, he would dismiss the crowd. But he has not come back out. And people began to wonder, what happened to Zechariah? I wonder if he died. You know, he could have seen God Almighty. And if he saw God Almighty, he wouldn't have been able to stand it. And maybe he's dead there. Maybe he killed over. Maybe he's leaning over the altar. Somebody's got to go in there and check him out. I mean, maybe somebody's got to go help him get out of there. What's wrong with Zechariah? Then all of a sudden, the priest shows up. Yay! Zechariah's not dead. But something's not right. Because he can't talk. But he's supposed to give the prayer right. Doesn't he know this? He's supposed to pray right now. To dismiss the crowd so we can go to dinner, right? I mean, that's, we've got to get to dinner. So we, he's supposed to dismiss the crowd in prayer. He, he's, not, he's not praying. And, oh, okay, now he's making a bunch of signs and signals. Wait a minute. He's trying to communicate to us that he can't talk, and he's seen an angel, a vision, in the holy place. Wow. That's weird. I mean, we've been coming to the temple every day for a long time to pray, and there's been no evening sacrifice that's ended like this. That's a little weird. They called some other priest to come up. He offered the benediction, the closing prayer. Everybody left. But people in the crowd, they thought to themselves, this is odd. This is weird. And Zechariah thought, this is odd. This is weird. He went back home. And to the surprise of his wife, maybe the pleasant surprise of his wife, he could not speak. He couldn't say anything. And what's even more remarkable and miraculous is that she conceived. She conceived. <laughs> Once again, you're not impressed by this. This old gal conceived. I mean, she was having a baby grow inside of her for nine months. Zachariah could not talk for nine months. John was growing inside Elizabeth's womb. And John always was a witness of Christ. I mean, even, even when Elizabeth goes and visits Mary some six months later, and, and Mary says that she has found favor with God and that she is carrying the Christ child, it is John in utero who begins to leap because he's always giving witness. That's my boy. That's Christ. That's the Messiah. Always. And for nine months, John is growing in Elizabeth's womb. And for nine months, oh boy, Zachariah can't talk. What would you do if you couldn't speak for nine months? You couldn't say good morning to your wife. You couldn't ask past the salt at dinner. You couldn't whisper sweet nothings in her ear. You couldn't yell at the jerk who cut you off at the marketplace. I mean, you can't say anything. What would you do for nine months if you couldn't talk? There's some wives that are listening to me right now thinking, you know, it wouldn't be that much different than normal. He never talks to me anyway, right? But stop and think about it. Nine months. That's a long time to think. You may not be able to speak, but I promise you he could think. And what did he think about? He thought about that ultrasound. He thought about what Gabriel said, that this one who will be named John 
We'll go in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Elijah. The one who raised the widow's son in Zarephath. Elijah. The one who defeated 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah on Mount Carmel. Elijah. Who never tasted death. But was swept up in a chariot. Elijah. And he thought to himself, my son is going to be like Elijah. He convinced himself he was going to be obedient to God. And one of the tangible ways to be obedient to God was to make sure that boy's name was John. As it came time for the delivery, he was insistent. I'm sure they probably got pretty good at texting each other and sending notes back and forth. And Zechariah said to his wife Elizabeth, this boy's name must be John. And she said, okay, sounds great. His name will be John. No problem. The baby was born. On the eighth day, as was their custom, they went back to the temple to circumcise him and to name him. Family and friends, they traveled with them. And Zechariah, Elizabeth, and the baby boy were there. Circumcision had already taken place. Now it was time to name the, the child. And the family and friends gathered and they said, you know what? We think we need to name him Zachariah Jr. Let's just call him Zach Jr. After all, old man's been through a lot over the last nine months. The least we can do is name the boy after him. And Elizabeth was insistent. No, his name is to be John. And they thought to themselves, well, John's a swell name. There's nothing wrong with John. I mean, the name John means that the Lord has been gracious. Certainly, God has been gracious in giving uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth this baby boy. And so in some ways, it makes sense to name him John. But otherwise, there's nobody else in the family that's named John. So why name him John? To confirm, they went to Zechariah. They took a parchment, a piece of paper. And on that piece of paper, with a pen, he wrote, his name is John. As soon as he wrote the last letters of the name John, his mouth was loosed. For the first time in nine months, preacher could talk again. For the first time in nine long months, he could speak. And what did he say? What would you say? If you had been shut up for nine months... And all of a sudden, you were able to speak. What would you say? Some of you would be angry at God. Some would be frustrated at the sovereign one. Some would say, God, I'm going to give you a what for. I'm going to tell you what you ought to do. I'm going to tell you what you should have done. And you would have tried to give God and straighten him out. But in this moment, Zechariah just offers a word of a benedictus. He offers a word of praise. The first word off his lips is praise be to God. The first word the word of praise and in this song in this sermon I, I know it says that he prophesied which is more like preaching than singing I get that I understand it but in this song it appears to me that what Zechariah is doing is he is praising God because he's telling the crowd God can be trusted I want to tell you God can be trusted he gives two reasons from this song of why God can be trusted. The psalm seems to break out. The song seems to break out in a couple of parts. These couple of parts are the couple of points of the sermon. That first and foremost, God can be trusted because redemption is near. In verse 68, he begins and talks about that God has come. That's interesting. He speaks of the divine visitation of God in past tense, even though in this moment, Jesus hadn't shown up yet. 
Yet in this moment, he speaks of it in past tense because it's a future event that he has such certainty will take place. He speaks of it as if it's already happened. God has come. Redemption has come. In verse 68, he speaks, God has come. In verse 78, he says, this rising sun will come from heaven. This idea of a divine visitation is bookends around this song. That God has come. God will come. That God has come in verse 68. God will come in verse 78. And the God who will come in verse 78, he calls the rising sun. Whoever this rising sun is, is God in the flesh. This rising sun, this one that John will prepare the way for, this rising sun will lead us into a path of peace unto God. This rising sun will come because we ought to praise God and we ought to trust God because redemption has come. Redemption is always found and bound in the divine visitation of God. That wherever there is God, there is redemption. Wherever there's redemption, there is God. He goes on to describe this redemption. Not only is it divine visitation, but it's also the horn of salvation. The horn is the symbol of strength and power and victory. He is saying to the watching world, we have victory in God. God can be trusted. Why? Because his salvation has come. His redemption has come. He is visiting us and he's given us the victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this redemption that we praise God for is not only found and bound in the divine visitation and the horn of salvation that gives us victory and power, but it's based upon God's mercy and his faithfulness to the covenants. Do you know that you're saved not because of your merit but because of his mercy? It is not because of your goodness, it's because of his greatness that you're saved. It's not the salvation originated with you, it originated with God. It's not that salvation was completed in you. It's completed in God. I mean, God is the one who initiates and, 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 and completes salvation for you and for me and for all who believe. And it's based upon his mercy. If it wasn't for the mercy of God, none of us would be saved. God is so merciful. It's not that he changed. It's not that he shifted uh, in the days of the New Testament. No, God has always been merciful. And his mercy is connected to his faithfulness to the covenants. The covenants are the promises that God has made to his people. They're unilateral agreements where God says, this is who I am and this is what I promise to do. Zechariah, who's a preacher, he's a priest, he knows his Old Testament, so he speaks of the covenant to Abraham and the covenant to David. Abraham's oath, Abraham's promise For the Lord said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I will make you into a great nation. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. All the nations on earth will be blessed through you. He said to Abraham, even though you and your wife do not have a child, a seed, I will bless the world through your seed, singular. Yet, Abraham, I want you to go outside and count the stars in the sky if you can. Count the grains of sand on the seashore if you can. So shall your offspring be. They'll be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And Abraham believed God, and it was credited unto him as righteousness. God made promises to Abraham, made covenants to Abraham. And because of God's faithfulness to Abraham, redemption has come. Because of God's faithful covenant to David 
The Lord said to David, of your house, of your kingdom, of your throne, there will be no end. Now you stop and think about it. I mean, David wasn't the best guy on the planet. He, he wasn't the most moral man. He, he never was a Father of the Year Award recipient. And yet the Lord said to David, David, I will establish your kingdom forever. And a descendant of David will always sit on the kingly throne. And of course, who the Lord is talking about is himself. He's talking about Jesus the Christ. For Jesus is a descendant of the line and lineage of David. And the reason redemption has come, Zechariah says, is because God is merciful and he's faithful to his covenants. I want you to know that God can be trusted, Zechariah says. God can be trusted because redemption has come. It is, it is bound in the divine visitation of God. It is based upon the fact that it is a horn of salvation, the power of salvation to save us based on his mercy and his faithfulness. But ultimately, this salvation that God gives, this redemption that he's given to you, is so that you may serve him freely. You know, the reason God saved you is to set you free. The ultimate example of freedom is to live life with no distractions of oppression. If you can live life with no distractions of oppression, that's freedom. That's real freedom. Where you're able to live without the prospect of being oppressed. Without the prospect of your enemies overtaking you. And the reason God has redeemed you, the reason God has saved you, is so that you will serve him freely and faithfully. Here, Zechariah says, listen, I want us to know that God can be trusted. Why? Because redemption has come. Secondly, God can be trusted. Not only because redemption has come, but secondly, because salvation of your sin is at hand. Verse 76, looking at his own son, Zechariah said, and you will be a prophet of the Most High. And you will go before him to give the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sin because of the tender mercy of God. That's a mouthful. You will go and you will give the knowledge of salvation. This salvation that God gives is only made possible through the forgiveness of sin. Now how do we know that our sins are forgiven? Think about the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist's ministry was a ministry of repentance. He would say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, the only way for you and for me to be at peace with God and the only way for us to have our sins forgiven is for us to repent. And once again, according to Daryl Bach in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, here's a great understanding of repentance. Repentance is turning to God alone to deal with our sin. That's repentance. Turning to God alone to deal with our sin. And if you stop and think about Luke's gospel, Luke repeats that theme over and over and over again. It's the rich man named Zach uh, Zacchaeus. The rich man named Zacchaeus. Here and now, Lord, I give half my possession to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. And what did Jesus say? Today, salvation has come to this house. Because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save that which is lost. You remember the lunatic named Legion? I mean, he is crazy. He meets Jesus. 
He repents of his sin. He is seated in his right mind. He wants to follow after Jesus. He wants to get back in the boat and go with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, I need you to stay here and tell your friends and family everything that the Lord has has done. And in obedience, he travels in the Decapolis, those 10 cities, and he tells everybody what Jesus had done for him. And ultimately, this idea that repentance is turning to God alone to deal with your sin is personified in one of the last portraits of John's gospel, of Luke's gospel. It's in Luke and Luke alone that we get the picture that Jesus is crucified between two thieves, one on his right and one on his left, and one of those robbers says to Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And what does Jesus say to him? Today you'll be with me in paradise. All of these are examples of what it looks like to repent, to turn to God and to trust that God and God alone can deal sufficiently with your sin. Here Zechariah says, listen, we can trust God. We ought to praise God. We can trust him because not only redemption has come, but now salvation, which is the forgiveness of sin, is very near and it's been made known of how we can be forgiven of sin. Ultimately, in the very last line of the song, he says, and the rising sun will come from heaven. That's Jesus Christ. And the rising sun will come from heaven and guide our feet into the path of peace. I find it so interesting that Zechariah says he will guide our feet. Zechariah is blameless. He's upright. And I don't care how blameless you think you are. I don't care how upright you think you are. You need to be guided to the path of peace in God. You can't get there on your own. You can't escort yourself into salvation. You need to be guided. So Zechariah says that this one who is to come, who will follow my boy, this one who will come after John the Baptist, this one who is the rising sun that we know of as Jesus, he will guide our feet under the peace of God. All of us, anyone who will follow him, anyone who will believe. So what is Zechariah saying? He's saying to himself, to his wife, to his family, to his friends, to his countrymen, to his nation, God can be trusted. Look, I know it's been 400 years, but God can be trusted. God can be trusted. God is doing something new. God is doing something fresh. God is moving in a mighty way. God can be trusted. All throughout Luke's gospel, there's a comparison and contrast between John and Jesus. John is good, Jesus is great. John points to salvation, Jesus is salvation. John declares the truth, Jesus is the truth. John points to the way, Jesus provides the way, for he is the way. There's this comparison and contrast, and here at the very outset, his father, Zachariah, Zachariah says, listen, God can be trusted. I don't know what all you're going through, I don't know what you're experiencing all in in your nation, in your culture, in your personal private life, in your marriage, in your family, in your workplace. I don't know all that you're going through. 
But there may be more than a few people who think to themselves right now, can God be trusted? I have not heard from him in a long time. It seems as if I call out to him and he has nothing to say. It feels as if he has a sovereign uh, uh, gag order upon himself. And he's given me the silent treatment and the stiff arm. And I don't know if I can take much longer of this. But friend, regardless of how long you've been in the spiritual desert, I promise you it's not been 400 years. It may feel like it, but it hasn't been 400 years. And Zechariah reminds us that God can be trusted. We ought to praise him. The first word off of Zechariah's lip, let it be the last word off of, off of my lips. We ought to praise him. We have reason to praise God Almighty. We ought to praise him because redemption has come. We ought to praise him because salvation is near. We ought to praise him because he who knew no sin became sin for us. We ought to praise him because God so loved the world that he gave us one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We ought to praise him because if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We ought to praise him because in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law. We ought to praise him because if the son has set you free, then you are free indeed. I don't know about you, friend, but we ought to praise the Lord. I don't know exactly what you're going through, but we ought to praise the Lord, we ought to keep on worshiping, keep on praying, keep on serving because God can be trusted. We ought to praise Him. We ought to praise Him. We ought to praise Him. We ought to praise Him because God is good. And God can be trusted. Whether you live in the first century or the 21st century, whether you're going through personal crisis or cultural crisis. Whatever it is that keeps you up at night, whatever it is that worries you, even if you feel as if God is not speaking to you, I want you to know that God can be trusted. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. Lord, for someone here who needs to know you as Savior, and Lord, I pray that today will be the day of salvation. Lord, for those who are here who need to pray, the altar's open. Help us to come and kneel and find help in our time of need. And Father, we pray that if you're raising up a missionary, if you're raising up somebody to join this church, let it happen today, let it happen in this moment. Lord, we give you this invitation. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.